You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Amen. Please be seated. And let's turn to Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. It's on page 586. I want to begin by reading the first 14 verses. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I'd nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens common to man. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds know no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? This is what the wicked are like. Always carefree, they increase in wealth. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been plagued. I've been punished every morning. Now the Psalms are just a great book of the Bible, but there are difficulties that we can have with the Psalms, which I think are resolved in a almost a straightforward way when, as Bonhoeffer says, we recognize the Psalms as the Bible's songbook and the Bible's prayer book. And he says this, if we want to read and to pray the prayers of the Bible, and especially the Psalms, therefore, we must not ask first what they have to do with us, but what they have to do with Jesus Christ. It's just a really important principle. We must ask, how can we understand The Psalms is God's word, and then we shall be able to pray them. It does not depend, therefore, on whether the Psalms express adequately that which we feel at a given moment in our heart. If we are to pray aright, perhaps it's quite necessary that we pray contrary to our own heart. Not what we want to pray is important, but what God wants us to pray. If we were dependent entirely on ourselves, we would probably pray only the fourth petition of the Lord's Prayer which, as you work it all out, you will know is give us our daily bread. But God wants it otherwise. And this is just a great line. The richness of the Word of God ought to determine our prayer, not the poverty of our hearts. Now, I know so many are are taught this. I was taught it in CU and I was taught elsewhere. Prayer is just outpouring your heart to God. It's not. It's partly that. But it's not just that. And that's why the prayers of the Bible are so important. And I think that's important with this psalm as well, because it's describing an experience that some of us will have had, maybe others haven't had, but it's very useful for us to know that this uh, song is in the Bible, this prayer is in the Bible. Because the book of Psalms doesn't hide from life, it faces life. This, by the way, is uh, the third book, as it's headed It's the first psalm in the third book. It's a psalm of Asaph, one of 12 that are of Asaph. And it's one that has a particular problem expressed in verse 13, 
Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. And he's just simply asking, is godliness worthwhile or just a waste of time? Non-Christians seem to be having all the enjoyment and Christians seem to get all the batterings. All day long I've been plagued, I've been punished every morning. So why not just go and join in the crowd? Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. Well, doubt. Sometimes we can have that level of doubt, not so much the intellectual doubt that can come in, but the kind of doubt that comes from just this overwhelming feeling, is this just all worth it? Why am I doing this? Doubt, says someone, is something only a believer can experience, for you can only doubt what you believe. Doubt is to unbelief what temptation is to sin, a test, but not yet a surrender. So let's just look, first of all, at what happens when our experience contradicts truth. Because the truth, first one, he begins, the, Asaph begins by saying, here's, here's something that's really true. God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Yesterday, I was at a conference in Edinburgh where a man called Ed Shaw was speaking, and he's speaking as somebody who's same-sex attracted. That's how he would describe himself. And he was describing some of the struggles that he has in that way and the pressure that gets put on him by people to say, well, you should just go along with all of that. And, and he said, I have to accept two basic things. God is good, and God's word is good. And therefore, I will always go along with God's word. And that's what the psalmist does here. He's saying, Asaph is saying, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But it doesn't stop there. He goes straight for something else and points out how his experience, the truth is that God is good, but his experience is that that doesn't seem to be the case. Calvin says that in our experience, Satan has numerous, numerous, Sorry, Satan has numberless artifices by which he dazzles our eyes and bewilders the mind. And then the confusion of things which prevails in the world produces so thick a mist as to render it difficult for us to see through it and to come to the conclusion that God governs and extends his care to things here below. Now, I don't know, you know if everyone here is a believer or not, but I think most people are. I don't know the extent of your... Christian walk and how it's gone on, but I suspect you won't have gone very far before you will have an experience which totally puzzles you because it doesn't fit in with God is good and he's good to his people and all things work for the good of those who love him. It just doesn't seem like that and it doesn't feel like that. And what Calvin calls this mist comes over our minds that obscures that we cannot see the goodness of God. So in verse 2, he says, my feet had almost slipped. God is good, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I'd nearly lost my foothold. I envied the arrogant. And his conflict there was that he was seeing that God's people suffer, the wicked seem to prosper. He was speaking about God's goodness to his own, not his general goodness to the whole world, but God's goodness to his own people, to the pure in heart. There's an inward purity in verse 13, but, out, but in verse 14, there's plagues and punishment. 
And, and what makes it worse is when you contrast it with the wicked, which just seems so unfair. The arrogant, the thoughtless, careless people. What are they, what's happening to them? They're enjoying prosperity. They have trouble-free lives. They are proud, violent, self-indulgent. They oppress the poor. There's a saying, they work them like horses and feed them like dogs. As we were coming back from Edinburgh this afternoon, I was listening to something on the radio which was describing a situation where uh, very wealthy people coming over to this country and bringing with them um, servants and describing how some of these servants who are in effect slaves are being rescued. And it was describing this one girl who had her passport taken from her, who was paid less than a pound an hour, who was beaten and so on. And that's what Asaph is seeing. They work them like horses. They feed them like dogs. They just don't care. Verse 8, their tongues, what they say, they threaten, they boast about being in charge of the universe. I don't think I've mentioned it many times because it just made such an impact on me. But I, when there were uh, stockbrokers in London, in the city, and in uh, New York on Wall Street, and they gave themselves the title Masters of the Universe, we are Masters of the Universe. I just thought it was so chilling, and this came to mind. Uh, They encourage others to join them, and they mock God. How can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? They seem to be both out with human and out with God's law. Sin is not only well paid, it is well thought of. And the discerning believer, and to be honest, any human being with any sense of justice looks at all of this and says, this is not right, this is so unfair. It seems as though the highway to hell is paved with roses and the road to heaven is rough and steep. Calvin quotes Ovid, the Greek philosopher, Latin philosopher rather, where he says this, I am tempted when I see such things to think that there are no gods. And that, now maybe some of you will say, well, that wouldn't be me. You know, I I'm with Jesus. I believe in God. I'm there all the time. And if I saw something like that, no, 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 I'd still be saying I believe in Jesus. Be careful. Be careful. Because God may test you in terms of your confidence on that basis. There are times when everything seems to be so overwhelming that in your heart you feel the real accusation of the evil one. Did God really say Is God really good? So Asaph looks at this. Now, there's a problem with what Asaph is doing in a way, because in a way, it's very self-absorbed. It's saying, what did I get out of it? Look what they got. What have I got? So now there follows a change of attitude, which is really quite spectacular. So verse 15, if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me. Till I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. What do we do when experience contradicts truth? Now, it's not easy to answer, but there are four principles here that I think are really, really helpful. 
The first is a strange one because you wouldn't necessarily take it first. Verse 15, he's saying, be loyal to the people of God. He had to face his problems without attacking the people of God or upsetting the people of God. He knew it would be betrayal. In every situation, he's basically saying, practice loyalty to and safeguard the welfare of the people of God. And what he's doing here immediately helps because he's taking it away from his immediate context and he's looking at the wider good of the whole community and of the whole people. He thinks about the family of God and not just himself. He knows that if he was to express his doubts and fears in this context to this people at this time, then it could do a great deal of harm. And sometimes that's the way it is, to be honest. Sometimes you will wrestle within yourself and there are not many people you can talk to. Maybe you've got a good friend you can talk to. But sometimes the experience goes so deep and the darkness is so dark that you know if you share it with people, you're just going to be loading that darkness on them and possibly increasing it. So you want to protect the people of God. It's a bit like in your own family. You may be aware of a situation in your own family that's not great, and you maybe want to protect your children. And for him, there's a, a tremendous loyalty. And I think we, we need to pick up on this a little bit because sometimes we're so self-absorbed that we just lash out. We lash out at God, and we don't care the damage that gets done to other people. But we need to be careful about what our brothers and sisters are hearing. I'm not saying that it's wrong, and I don't think the psalmist is saying that it's wrong to express doubts or to ask questions and so on. But I'm saying that there is to be, a, it's not to be about us all the time. It's to be about the wider church, the wider people of God. His second principle, verses 16 and 17, is be in the place of worship. Asaph knew he could not go and give his complaints to other people. It was too heavy to handle, though, on his own. So where could he go? What could he do? Go to worship. He didn't need to be alone. He could come to the sanctuary. One commentator says this, the temple is where God called his people to meet with him and with one another, to hear his word and to respond in praise and prayer and self-offering. In that God-centered fellowship, each is at the service of the rest and each is attentive and obedient to what God says to all. What we do when we gather together in public worship, on the Lord's Day especially, morning and evening, we are coming collectively as a group, as a covenant people, and saying to, Lord, to the Lord, speak for your servant is listening. Now, I think there's a real problem in today's church, in our culture, where we've lost a lot of that sense of collectiveness, and it is about us. It's about me and my group and the people that we like and what I think and what I want and what I do. But you know, it, for me, as I read God's Word and as I look at a passage like this, I'm thinking, here is somebody who's going through the darkest doubt, doubting the goodness of God. I don't think there is a stronger doubt, a deeper blackness, than doubting the goodness of God. And instead of him staying away from God's people, instead of him retreating within himself, he comes into the sanctuary to worship. Not because he understands, but
but precisely because he doesn't understand. I know sometimes I've met people and say, I just can't come to church just now because I can't cope, because I don't understand, because I've had all these difficulties. And it may be that there may be extraordinary circumstances where that is the right thing. But it seems to me that there are very, very extraordinary circumstances because you come together to worship God and the focus is not on you and on your problems. The focus is not on how you're getting on with other people. The focus is on God. And as the focus is on God, so that broader perspective helps. It enormously helps you. Because in verse 17, you get God's different perspective. It's the perspective of eternity. And this is what he sees when he comes to worship God. He realizes that these people, that in the world that he's living, these people are prospering and the Lord's people are suffering. And then he comes and in the light of eternity, he sees that these people are living an illusion. That they're living a fantasy, that their destiny is insecure. That they will find that they're the ones who've been deceived. That terror awaits them. Daniel 12 verse 2, one of the most terrifying verses in the whole Bible. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who sneer at what God has done and at God's people will find themselves cast out and rejected. And it's interesting because what the psalmist does here, and what I find fascinating here is, instead of him thinking, the reality is what I experience in the world on a week-to-week basis, on a day-to-day basis, and my faith is an illusion, he now completely reverses the situation and says what I'm experiencing in the world is an illusion and my faith is the reality. The unbeliever's final destiny is insecure. They're destroyed and all their thoughts about God turn out to be fantasies. The higher they climb, the further they fall. Shakespeare in Henry IV says this, I have long dreamt of such a kind of man, so surfeit swelled, so old and so profane, but being awake, I do despise my dream. The arrogance of those who consider themselves to be rulers or those who consider themselves to be powers or those who consider themselves to be greater than God, those who sit in judgment upon God. Their day will come and it's not a pleasant day. Be loyal to the people of God, be in the place of worship, get a different perspective and realize who you are. He said, I was as a brute beast. And then you realize, I'm not a brute beast. I'm not senseless and ignorant. A brute beast is somebody who's just immediately reacting to their immediate sense. But out of the trial that Asaph has, there's a degree of humility. And he said, oh Lord, I was so stupid. I was so stupid when I was thinking like this. He's saying, I'm not just an animal. Humans are so much more than that. Humans laugh. Animals don't, not even laughing hyenas. We are the only animals that reason and think. And we are the only animals that worship as a conscious act. You can argue that created things worship as an unconscious act. But as a conscious act, we are the only animals that do that. And here again is the paradox. I can guarantee if you went home tonight and you switched on the television and you flick through the channels, you would find numerous, not all, but you would find numerous programs which would be telling you that you are just a beast and you should behave like a beast and act like a beast. 
And God brings you into his sanctuary and says, listen, you are way, way more than that. Way more. It's funny, people think that, you know, you go to church to have guilt piled upon you and to be oppressed and to be put down. And in reality, what's in our culture and what's in this world, it's really oppressive to what you really are. So what's the answer? Verses on to, from verse uh, 23, yet I'm always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterwards you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you and earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it's good to be near God. I've made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. This is the answer. Verses, these verses are telling us that it is Christ. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire beside you. I know a man who, when he sang this verse, uh, immediately went, oh no, I can't get married. He was engaged. And he thought, this is telling me I've got nobody, so I can't. Uh, it was a complete misapplication of the passage. But I'll tell you this, where it's not a complete misapplication is, you know, I'm going back to Ed yesterday, Ed Shaw, I was very impressed with him, and he said people were, you know, they were kind of saying things like, oh, well, don't worry, once, you've, once we get you sorted out, you know, the, the kind of older women in the church were saying, we'll find you a nice lady and you'll be fine. And for them, it seemed as though that was it. Marriage was the be-all and end-all. And Ed was saying, what's wrong with being single? There's nothing wrong with being single in a biblical sense. Because all the gifts that we receive, whether it be something as magnificent as, you know, a partner in life, or whether it's children, or whether it's lots of money, or, you know, lots and lots of different things, gifts and talents, what is it without Christ and without God? Ultimately, it's nothing. It's nothing. What is joy without God? What is heaven without God? What is life without God? It's like going to a party because you've been invited by the particular host uh, or hostess and you're, you're going because you want to meet them. You turn up at the party and there's the wine and there's the, the, the drinks and there's the food and the canapes and all that kind of stuff. And there's the music, but the host isn't there. Well, what's the point of the party? If the object of your affection or your admiration is not present. And here is what the psalmist is saying. He says, when I looked at things from a worldly perspective, I saw the tough time your people were having. I saw the tough time I was having. I saw the great time it appeared that unbelievers were having and they were mocking you. And I thought, what's the point? And can it be that God is good? And then he said, I went and I understood. And I understood that without God, they have nothing. And with God, I have everything. Verse 23, I'm always with you. You hold me by my right hand. He has a secure present. I, I'm always with you. I'm not far from you and you're not far from me. I have a future. Verse 24, you guide me with your counsel and afterwards you will take me into glory. Whatever happens, I'm going to glory. Verse 25, whom have I in heaven but you? In earth is nothing I desire beside you. That's saying he has earthly and heavenly wealth that people in this world can only dream of. Verse 24, he's got guidance. You guide me with your counsel. What do I do? Where am I going? I don't understand this, but Lord, you will guide me. And again, that's why he comes with God's people. And verse 23, he's got protection. Protection. 
you hold me by my right hand. In good old brethren style, I saw one sermon once that had it like this, you're grasped, you're guided, and you're glorified. God's got you. God guides you. And God's glorifying you. Romans 8, 29, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. There's an extraordinary thing. What is God's plan for your life? God has a wonderful plan for your life. Is it going to be uh, this job? Is it going to be that person? Is it going to be, you know, this age or future? And God says, I've got a plan for you, and this is the plan. I've predestined you to be conformed to the image of my son so that Jesus would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters, so that Jesus would have a magnificent family. And that's what you're for. Peter says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, although now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith may be proved genuine of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, and that it may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. It's extraordinary. Peter tells us what Asaph tells us what David tells us, what Jesus tells us, that Christians are in such a secure position that nothing can ever take our inheritance away. The wicked perish. If you are not a believer, there is nothing that you have that you will keep. Nothing. But for the Christian, it's good to be near God because there's nothing that you have in God that you will ever lose. And that's how we get a real and a balanced perspective. Verse 15 says, if I'd said thus, I, I would, would have betrayed your children. If I'd you know, gone around attacking you, if I'd gone around questioning in public, is God good? How can this be? Verse 28 says, I will tell of all your deeds. It's a real contrast, a real contrast. I said at the beginning, and I think this psalm identifies that. It's not wrong to doubt. And we will struggle sometimes with the experience of our lives which seems to contradict the truth of God's word. Notice the word seems. And that's where our faith really needs to hold on. That's where we need to be in the place of God to hear God speak to us. Even here tonight, this is God's word to you. This is a living word. This is, it's it's sharp. It goes right into our very soul and being. God says, I know what you've been thinking. I know. I know your hypocrisy. 
I know the coldness. I know the hardness. And above all, I know the darkness and the fears and the doubts. Now hold on to what I am telling you. Surely God is good to Israel. God is good to his people. That is the perspective that we need to have, an eternal perspective, a spiritual perspective. Maybe I'll finish with this quote from C.S. Lewis. And I think it's just a, just a, a typical Lewis, such a wonderful insight. He's talking about where we are as human beings. And he says this, we can be left utterly and absolutely outside, repelled, exiled, estranged, finally and unspeakably ignored. On the other hand, we can be called in, welcomed, received, acknowledged. That's what Asaph is teaching us. He's saying, these people seem to be doing so well. They seem to be in. They're in with the in crowd. They're popular. And I seem to be out. I was exiled. But when I came into the sanctuary of God and I thought about what God has done and I think about what Jesus has done, I realize that I am accepted. I am called in. I am welcomed. I am received. And those who mock and abuse and turn away from God, they are the ones who, unless they repent and turn, will be finally and unspeakably ignored. They will be thrust into the outer darkness. And I will be welcomed into the wedding feast of the Lamb. It is a marvelous, marvelous thing for us as believers. Again, I'm just going back to, to Ed show yesterday. How can he cope? Well, it's not how Ed Shaw can cope. It's how can any of us cope when we see the reality of this world and the darkness of our own hearts and the struggles that we face and the doubts and the fears that we have. Our hope is in Christ alone. I, if, if, if you forgive the expression, I have gambled, if you like, I have bet my whole life on the fact that God is good and that Jesus is God and that Jesus is good. And the more I go on, the more I say simply, he's never let me down and he never will. I believe absolutely and totally in Jesus Christ. And when the devil comes with all his slings and discouragements and attacks, you stand up and you look at him with the shield of faith and the arrows bounce off because you're saying, not I am good, but God is good. And as we sit at the Lord's table in a moment, we're remembering that, the goodness of God celebrated because he gave his son for us. Amen. Let's sing uh, again as we, before we take communion. We're going to sing the song. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk.
For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of Solace, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solace-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.